Father, as we sit and stand before you, we want to be awed by what you have done, the, the works of your hands. As we get into your word, show us and help us to have a clear understanding of what it was like for the people who experienced you firsthand as they came out of Egypt and they started their trek through the wilderness. We pray, Lord, that you would give us some excitement knowing that you were right there with them the whole time, that you had communion, you had fellowship with them through Moses. But, Father, help us also to realize we have fellowship with you directly, that you have made us a kingdom of priests to wait on you and minister to the people. Help us to realize these things, that we might do your bidding, that we might expand your kingdom, that we might be a witness as the people of Israel were to be. We ask for this to be accomplished, Lord, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. At this particular point in the story in Exodus chapter 34, I'll end up reading from verse 8. You have the Israelites, remember they went through all the sin problems. God said, okay, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to follow you in the wilderness as you go into the promised land, the land that has been promised not only to them, but also to their forefather, Abraham. It was given to them. And God was so good. God could have gotten so frustrated as he told us in the scriptures that he would have, could have just left just packed it in, just said, I've had enough. Have you ever gotten to that point where you've had enough, where somebody has just bothered you to the nth degree and said, that's it, our friendship is over, or that's it, our marriage is over, or that's it, our team is done, and you just say, I quit. I should not be treated like this. I should not have to endure this, and many times that can be true. God would have been completely righteous in saying, I am done with you guys, you stiff-necked people, is what he called her, remember? And so he didn't. He turned around just because Moses asked and said, God, please, go with us. I don't want to go, he said. He interceded for the people. We don't want to go if you're not going to be with us. We might as well just stay right here. And God, having a compassionate heart, said, Okay, I'll go. And I started relating this to, after seeing some uh, little infant videos, like on Facebook, you know, people post those videos, how helpless those little babies are. And I saw this uh, one little baby, I don't know if you know the Suttons, but uh, the Suttons lost a child about a year and a half ago. And they have two little boys, and they just got another one. And they've been posting pictures of him, and he's healthy, and he's all good, and and he's completely reliant on his parents to survive. Unlike an antelope or a rhinoceros or something like that, unless a lion comes along, they're up on their feet within minutes, right? A little baby, you have to take care of that little baby completely reliant upon its parents for its sustenance and its very life. That's how we're supposed to look at Jesus Christ or God the Father. He is our Father. He takes care of us. And as the child grows, as like the Sutton child will grow, or as, you know, little grandchildren or children as they grow, we are, should be extremely patient with them because they don't know right from wrong. 
They make mistakes all the time. Have you ever seen those videos of little children? Like I I saw this one, this little boy. He starts crying his eyes out because the cereal is all gone and there's no more and he wants more and there's none in the box and he can't be consoled. And the parent, as they're filming it, they're just saying, it's all gone. And they're just wailing because it's not there, getting so upset over something that, you know, it can't be helped. And we're patient with our kids and our grandkids. And God is patient with us like that. We turn to God and metaphorically speaking, we say, the cereal box is empty. And he goes, it can't be helped. You know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. And he takes care of us just like a parent would a little child that is completely helpless. He provides for us. That's the compassion that God has for us. And he says, you know what, as you grow older, you don't, you don't even know what's in store for you. We're going to go to Legoland. We're going to go to Disneyland. We're going to go to Knott's Berry Farm. I'm going to buy you a car. It's all going to be fun and wonderful. But along the way, you're going to make some mistakes. And I'm going to correct you, but it's okay because I still love you. I love you even more now than when I first thought of you. And, and that's how God deals with us. This is how he's dealing with the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel would be like a terrible two. You understand a terrible two, right? They, I have a grandson. We were at a, a, a dinner or a lunch yesterday for my daughter. It's her birthday, and we sent her off. She went on a trip, and... It's all good. My grandson, he's down at the end of the table, and he is just a spitfire. My son told him, Drake, don't. And you know what he did? The, the furrowed eyebrow goes down, and he just gets the lip going up. Okay. And sometimes, no, you know, he just want to do his own thing, and that's what? Now, he's a little older, but that's what the terrible twos are. That's the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, they were the terrible twos all over the place. And, of course, God had to discipline them on several occasions. But he comes back and he says, I am going to make a covenant with you. And verse 10 is where I'm going to pick it up from, actually. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Be careful not to make any treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare to you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God." There's just tons packed in these four verses right here. And I'm going to break this down for you. He's establishing or reestablishing a covenant with the nation of Israel that he originally gave to their forefather Abraham, saying, I'm going to bring you into this land. And in fulfillment of that, his children from Abraham are going to be more numerous than the sands on the earth, than the dust. If you could count the sands, the grains of sand, then you could count the children of Israel that are going to be born through the promise that was given to Abraham. He's bringing them into the land. 
Abraham was given the promise. He's going to drive out the inhabitants before them and accompany them along the way. That's the covenant that he's making with the people. He also makes this covenant with us. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. There is no way that God is going to abandon us even when we get upset at him. Have you ever had your child or grandchild really mad at you? Because you won't do something for them. They just get in the vernacular of our day. They get ticked. And they go, they slam their door. They go into their room and say, fine. You know, my son and I, as he was growing up, he was a compliant child uh, for the most part. He would do pretty much everything that I asked him to do. With a little bit of tension here and there, but nothing real big. And we're close today. But there was one moment where he had this car and he was just being just as ornery and stubborn as he could possibly be. And in my opinion, of course, he was wrong. You know, and that's just my prerogative. I can say you were wrong in this. And I did. And he goes, fine, I'm leaving. I said, not with my truck, you're not. And I went outside and I pulled the coil wire. You know, I got, if you don't know what the coil wire is, the car's not going to run without a coil wire. So I popped that hood, I pulled that thing, and he goes, fine! And he just starts walking away. I go, okay, fine, he'll be back. And he was. And, you know, we worked it all out, but just obstinance. And, and that's, again, the people of the nation of Israel. They were bring, being obstinate, but God made this promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. In John chapter 14, verses 15 through 19, if you will love me, you will obey and you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. And this is a promise to us. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So his promise that he gave to the nation of Israel, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you until you get to the promised land. And even after the temple was built, God's Shekinah glory came down into the temple like a cloud. It came down and it filled the Holy of Holies where they couldn't even go in there. Well, God promises to put that Shekinah glory in us via the Holy Spirit. He is in us if we are his, if we are part of the family or we are children of God. God puts his Holy Spirit in us. He is the one that convicts us. He is the one that leads us away from sin and into righteousness. Now, it's not like you're having a conversation with yourself, but you know when God's telling you, don't, right? If you're listening, he, he will just say, no, I wouldn't do that. And sometimes we listen and we heed, and other times... I didn't hear that. And you just go on. You just go do what you want to do, right? Well, God's promise to us is his Holy Spirit is living in us. How much power is in us? The power beyond all powers. He is all powerful. He is inside of us. That's what he promised to us. How good is God to do that? Remember, I talked to you last week how he's going to give us everything, and he will certainly do that. But not only that, but he, he becomes one with us, and he became one of us, and he will be one of us forever, forever. And the second thing here, Israel will be a witness of the awesome power of God locally. 
They were supposed to be a witness locally. In verse 10, it says in the second half, the people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. As the church, we are also called to be a witness. And of course, it's in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, that we are to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So God wants us to be a witness, just like he told the Israelites they would be a witness. Their witness was more locally. Ours is local, national, and international. That's how we're supposed to walk in obedience to him, being a witness to whomever we come in contact with. But with all this, the third thing, obedience is called for. If we're not obedient, we ruin our witness. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29 and 30, and 29 specifically, it says, Peter and the other apostle replied, we must obey God rather than men. And this is when he was before the Sanhedrin. And they commanded him not to preach any longer in the name of Jesus Christ. And he goes, are we supposed to obey you? Or are we supposed to obey God? Of course, the answer is we're supposed to obey God. Obedience is big with God. He desires us to be obedient in all things. First John chapter 2, verse 3 says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now I need to qualify this a little bit. Who in here has not sinned lately? Yeah, and I'm in that group too. All of us have sinned which means we have broken the commands of God. But scripture clearly says, if we know him and we love him, we keep his commands. Well, what are his commands and how do we keep them? Our commands are, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent, which is Jesus Christ, right? We do that first. Then we're to walk in the newness of life, worthy of a calling that we have been called to. That's also understood from Scripture. But when we sin, God says, if you ask for forgiveness, he will extend it to us. And that is also keeping the commands of God. If we blow it, we say, God, I blew it again. I'm here again and again and again. And will you please forgive me? And he goes, I forgive you. Are you getting ever tired of forgiving me? No, I don't get tired and he tells us one day don't worry i'm going to take away that nature have you ever had a nature that just is bent on evil or badness if i can use that word you experience that i I experience that sometimes with driving (laughs) the other night i'm driving down highway eight and you know people are changing lanes right in front of me without signaling and i'm bright them you know and you bright them and you turn it off and and then i think to myself how many times have i done that how many times have i inconvenienced somebody on the road i go i'm sorry lord i'm sorry okay i'm gonna slow down i'm just gonna let i want them to have grace right because i i know and you know we all make mistakes like that but god says it's okay you just ask for forgiveness and you'll be forgiven it's the person that says I can do this, and it's okay. God says, no, I don't think so. And he will deal with us. If we are believers, he disciplines us. But he usually brings to us mercy, not judging us according to our sins, if we are humble before him. 
And that's what he asks us to do. What a great God we serve. Every other God that is out there is capricious. It just says, that's it, I'm done with you. And they just like knock you off. They take their finger and just, you're done. You know, that type of thing. Oh, you want to get to heaven? I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking about it. Maybe I'm not thinking about it. God, our God is not like that. He promises to get us to heaven. He gives us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the things that are to come. First John chapter five, verses three and on to four, it says, this is love for God to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Now we might think so. It's like you tell your child, go clean your room. I don't want to. It's not hard. Yes, it is. There's so much in there. And God's telling us, my commands are not burdensome. You say, yes, it is. I can't have fun. I can't play my video game, you know, when I'm doing that. And you, you see the connection there? God is our father and treats us as his sons and daughters. And we do the same thing with our sons and daughters. We lead them in the path of righteousness for his, for his namesake. That's what he does to us. The next point here, number four, he tells the Israelites, do not make a treaty with those in Canaan. Now, the Israelites were not to enter into any type of agreement where, like if we have an agreement with the nation of Israel, right? There are friends. There's no greater ally, Benjamin Netanyahu just said, than the United States that they have. And also, I would consider that the same thing. We have no greater ally than Israel. We are, are like this. Now, that was almost destroyed, but... God had his way, and I think that's going to be restored, and that's good. They are still the chosen people of God. If you can't deal directly as a nation with God, deal with his people in a kind way, and God will bless us. That's a promise in Scripture. Those who bless Abraham or his seed will also be blessed. We have been blessed because we have blessed the nation of Israel. There's no doubt about it. And Sometimes people don't recognize that, but if we do good to those whom God loves and God has a plan for the nation of Israel, and the Antichrist is going to come through that and he's going to restore the entire nation and those who are left during the tribulation, all the Jews will get saved during that time and they will be a mighty people. And we will also be priests ministering to the nation of Israel and to everyone else around the world. So God has a plan for both Israel and his church. But we are to live separate from the world even though it's the place that we reside. Now the nation of Israel, they have been dispersed for approximately 2,000 years and they've come back into the land May 14th, 1948 as on Wednesday Tom was talking about that. He, He went into that a little bit. And for a group of people to survive for 2,000 years without losing their identity, that is a miracle. I started to do a search to see if that was true with all peoples. Like in China, you know, they've been around for several thousand years, but they weren't dispersed. They have been locked behind a great wall to where nobody else can get out. North Korea, same thing. They are locked there. And so, but the Israelites were scattered over all the earth. And it is nearly impossible not to lose your identity by that and God said I want you to remain unified in purpose following after me is what he said God told them follow after me and as they followed after him they maintained their identity and to this day they are the nation of Israel that has been around for thousands of years if you go all the way back to Abraham but he says do not mingle with the world do not have a part with them second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 
It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God and God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Now, we have also all followed the ways of the world. Some of us still follow the ways of the world. All of us, to some degree, still do it. And God says, don't. Now, to what degree we follow the ways of the world, eh, that's, you know. Nobody can call that out for you. You know how much you follow the ways of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. And so we all, again, follow the world. The question is, does the world look at you and say, or me, and say, you're one of us? Or does the world look at us and say, you are not one of us. Maybe you've heard the old adage, if you're put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? We want to make sure there is abundant evidence for somebody in a criminal court of law to convict us of being Christians. Now, what does that look like? That means you basically forsake the ways of the world. You say, I'm not going to live like the world. Now, our world really is in the United States, right? That's where we live, specifically in California. If you live in San Diego, what would you say would characterize you as someone of the world as opposed to someone who is in Christ? Now, I'm not asking for an answer on this because whatever I say, I'm going to hit somebody, right? And if you, you're going to say, what? why did you attack mine? You know, that, that's my little corner. That's my little closet. And I don't do it that much. And if, like in general, the United States, if you, if you took something in the United States that you said, this is a cultural norm in the United States, one of those things would be, now I, and I like it, it's okay, football, right? It is uniquely American. What else is uniquely American? Baseball. It's uniquely American. Basketball. Basketball was started at a YMCA. They put baskets, apple baskets, I think they were, up on either side, and they couldn't dribble the ball then. They would just toss it and see who could get the ball in the basket, and that's how basketball started. It's uniquely American. Now, is baseball uniquely British? No, it's not. What's British? Well, cricket. You take the hit the ball, and you hit the ball out there. That's that's uniquely them, but it's not uniquely us. We have this culture that's us. Now there are people that go overboard with the sports, and I love sports. Don't get me wrong, I love sports, but how much do I love them? Do am I dedicated to the altar of the charges? Lord forbid. But you know, would I be doing something like that? And everybody knew, but you know, the uh, tattoo removal companies are having a gangbuster 
business right now because of all the bolts that people have tattooed to their bodies. They're getting those things removed. And, and so, you know, how do you look at the world? Are you part of the world? You know, when we post on Facebook, we have to be so careful. Not because where we are or what we're doing, you know, if you think you have the freedom to do something, I would say, wonderful. If the Lord, our God, has given you freedom to do something and you don't see it as a sin and Scripture doesn't declare it as a sin, fine. But I I would caution all of us, don't put on Facebook something that may stumble a younger believer because you can lead a younger believer into sin by what you approve. And me too. And Scripture tells us, don't do it. Don't put that stuff on Instagram. Don't put that stuff on Facebook. All of that we want to just forsake. If you want to say something nice and encouraging and uplifting and all of that, that's wonderful. Do that. Be a witness for Christ. But if what you're posting on there is what everybody else in the world does, it's probably not good. The world would look at us if we're doing that like, ah, you're one of us. Make sure whatever you post is glorifying to God. Before you stick it on there, say, God, would this be good for me to put on there? Would I be stumbling somebody if I did that? And so you want to use it sparingly, right? It's like be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Be quick to read and to bless. Be slow to post, right? And so that somebody doesn't have to come along and say, what are you doing anyhow? What's going on with you? And and so that's just a little side note. We are not to engage in the ways of the world. And what the world considers full of wisdom is not. It is foolishness. And what God considers wisdom, the world considers foolishness. Now, I'm going to take a contemporary subject, and I'm going to be very delicate with this. But (coughs) we have to take our theology and we cannot just put all of our beliefs into a box we're supposed to carry our beliefs on a platter to where everybody can see it not put them in a box if somebody comes along and says oh your belief in god that's just wonderful just keep it to yourself scripture says no we're not supposed to do that one of the commandments of scripture is go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and holy spirit and all authority has been given to jesus to give us this command and so it comes directly from god now how does that work out that means we take our religion we take what we believe we take what we hold to and we focus on the world it's like if this were your bible You put this on as a set of glasses, right? You put this on and you're looking at the world through the word and you make discerning judgments about the world. You take the contemporary issues which are out there and you say, this is wrong and this is right and this is how we are to judge. Uh, An example of that would be um, cloning, right? When I, I was in seminary, we'd had to read books on ethics and what is ethical and what is unethical. And if you take an embryo, which is actually a human being, a fertilized egg, and you start manipulating that, you're actually doing testing on human beings, right? There's a big debate that's going on right now about T-cells. And the T-cells are more effective and can be used in more applications that are taken from adults 
they take some scraping from the skin and they treat it and it turns into these T cells which will modify into any cell in the body that they want. But there is this movement to take T cells from embryos. They are in their natural state. They don't have to be changed. But there have been problems with that and they cause tumors. But there's still a movement to do that. Now you look at that and you go, well, how do I judge that as a believer? You judge that as the embryo is a person. Would you want somebody testing on a full-grown adult as opposed to an egg? And you might say, well, it's just an egg. It's not an egg. It's a human being. And see, this is where we lose the debate. Uh, It was Bill Clinton that says he didn't believe a person had life until they actually took their first breath. What is the difference between a baby one day outside of the womb and a baby one day inside the womb? Absolutely nothing. What is the difference between a person who is in, in a geriatric state that cannot breathe on their own and require a respirator for a time of respite until they can get better and the person who can breathe on their own. Nothing. The baby in the womb has a built-in respirator, right? The person in the geriatric ward has an external respirator. There's no difference. The things that make us a human are, it is our DNA. That's what makes us human. As soon as that egg is fertilized, it's human. Until they die... It is human. If we take that life wantonly without regard to the life, saying it doesn't have intrinsic value or built-in value, as soon as we do that, we violate God's command. We go away from it. That's just one, cloning. And so do we clone somebody? Do we not clone somebody? It's a whole debate, but generally speaking, we don't clone human beings. We're messing with God's design. And not that we can't experiment. Like if I was talking to Daryl and John this morning, they have figured out a way to take somebody who has died, their heart, and each one of the cells in the heart, they've figured out a way to take out all the material inside the cell wall in each one of the millions of cells inside of a heart. Then they will take your DNA and put it inside the heart these T-cells, and they will grow a new heart, brand spanking new. And they will give it to you. And they will transplant your own heart into your own chest if you need a new heart. Now, it'll cost you not just your first male child, but your entire family to do that. But they're just making incredible leaps and bounds in these areas, and it's just phenomenal what they're doing. But we have to be able to judge these things. Now, let me take another subject. This one's a little more sensitive. What has been the biggest news story that starts with an I and ends with an N? Immigration. That's it. Now, you look at immigration and you hear this, well, you got these dreamers that come across and, you know, they're born here in the United States and it would just be tragic to take their parents away and it's pulling on the heartstrings, right? Right? How many kids can you bring in and have them be birthed here and then take on their family and tax the people who are here in order to provide for them an income? How far can you go in doing that before it affects the entire country? Well, there's a threshold. And if we do that, are we going to be in trouble? Yes, we're going to be in trouble. And you might say, but how do you take the Bible and look at that? Well, let me go a little farther in this. We have brought in all kinds of immigrants. Now, I am for immigration. I'm going to tell you that right away. It may not be what you define as immigration, but 
I am for immigration. And again, I'm taking the Bible and holding it up to the issue and saying, is this what God wants? I want to install the wisdom of God, but the world's going to think it's foolishness. And the world's going to look at the wisdom that I have that comes from God, and they're going to say, you're the fool. You're wrong. Do you understand that? This is how it works. So we have to take our theology, hold it on a platter, and put it out there. Jesus told the Israelites, get your theology. Everyone's going to see how you have been blessed because you have followed my word and you're going to be a witness. Is that witness received? No. The world will not receive the witness. So when it comes back to immigration, what have we done? If you guys are familiar with the term balkanize, Balkanize does not mean you've had too much to eat and you're bulking up, right? Balkanizing is where you take groups of people that are normally hostile to one another and you put them in the same area and tell them, get along, right? Now, I want to be sensitive with this. Genuinely so. What does Islam have in common with Christianity? The word is nothing. We have nothing in common. They are different gods. As I've told this church many times, the Quran teaches that there are really no human rights. That's why they can lop off heads. That's why they can burn people in cages. You can also beat your wife. Women are considered chattel. They are not considered human beings having the same rights as men. And there's, maybe you've heard that story, it's been modified a little bit of the woman who said, I'm going to hitchhike across the Middle East and I'm going to prove to you that um, you can do that without being raped. Well, it's not true. Uh, Apparently she was raped. Now, I don't know if she was killed and there's a, a morphing together in this story. And so they have different values than what we have. Up in Dearborn, Michigan, there's a large Muslim community. You know, this immigration, immigration was greatly reduced in 1924 to 1965 in this country. And the reason it was is we had so many immigrants come in. And again, I want to keep this in the forefront of your mind. I'm taking the theology and putting it into practice, practical application here. So we haven't had immigration or we had a period of immigration where it was greatly limited between 1924 and 1965. Because of that, or the reason that was done is the country wanted the people to assimilate and become Americans. Now, we are uniquely American. All the sports that I just mentioned, what else is uniquely American? Now, Christmas, we do it up big in the United States. Thanksgiving is uniquely for us. Resurrection Day, although it's celebrated around the world in some quarters, I mean, you take those holidays, that is us. That is who we are. We are hard workers. We are givers. You know, uh, there's so much to say about that. Anyhow, but that, that makes out our culture. That's who we are. If we take these other cultures and we bring them in and we have different groups, different pockets all around, like you go up to uh, San Francisco and what do you have? Chinatown, right? You go to Chinatown. If you go to Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, you have the Christian quarter. You have the Jewish quarter, you have the Muslim quarter in the old city. Do you think they get along all the time? They don't get along. It's like these groups become hostile to one another. And that's what we're doing in the United States. We're bringing in so many people and we are not becoming unified. We're becoming 
balkanized, where you take those hostile groups and you put them around. And you say, what does that have to do with scripture and the Bible? I thought you'd never ask. Let me give you some scripture. This is what God is after. And this is why God told the Israelites, do not mix with the people who are out there in the world. Psalm 133 verse 1. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. John 17:23. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as I or you have loved me. Romans 15:5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4:2. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. I have two or three more scriptures that deal with unity. God is big on unity, right? Now somebody might say, yeah, but that's in the church. By our diversity, we are stronger, right? Imagine if we had diverse theological opinions about the theanthropic principle of Jesus Christ. Now you go, what are you talking? If we differed about the Trinity, do you think it would be good No, we have to be unified in that. What about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? We have to be unified in that. If our country is unified by extension, it will work. And you might, somebody might say, well, now wait a second. We're talking about the church. Well, Jesus said this. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided itself against itself will fall. And he was talking about the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. And he says here, any kingdom that is divided will fall. Now, I want to go back to Dearborn, Michigan. What kind of law do they want to live under, the Constitution or Sharia law? Sharia law. If they could, if they had the power, would they install it across the country? They would. Now, look, God loves the Muslim just like he loves the Christian. And there are some devout Muslims who are not given to Sharia. I, I just want to say that. But this idea that the world, the political class has out there is, let's have all these different groups. No, we need to be unified. Just like in the church, in our country, we need to be unified. And if you cut the immigration, you know, if you look at that, I'm not being political. I'm being biblical. I just want to make sure this is completely clear and understanding. When we walk away from God, we get these foolish ideas that our country can be run in a particular way, and it's not even biblical. We just say, ah, it's all good. At what point does it become immoral to overtax the people? At what percentage is it immoral? You know, I think it was during the Johnson administration that it was, or Kennedy, it was 90% tax rate that was up there, and they want to bring that down, that's immoral when it gets to that level. And so there are principles, there are laws, there are uh, things that guide us in Scripture to even discern if something is good or bad, not only for us, but for the country. And this is how we judge it. Now, if you walked up and said, it is not good that we are all diverse, we should be unified, we should have a common language, right? Right? Now, some people are going to say, you are being so political. No, I'm not. I'm being biblical. Do the Jews today speak Hebrew? They do. Did the Jews in King David's time speak Hebrew? 
Yes, they did. Abraham, did he speak Hebrew? Yes, he did. They've had a common language for thousands of years. When they excavate something in Israel, the person, if he's a Jew, been raised in Israel, he picks it up, he can read it. (laughs) Try to read hieroglyphics, can't do it. And so God says, you are strong when you were unified, not only in the church, but also outwardly. And this is my goal in telling you all this, that we would go explain these things to the people who disagree. Now, not in a pejorative sense, not beating them over the head, just being a witness for God. You can say God's wisdom is so pure. It is so simple. It is so wonderful. And God wants you to be blessed with it. And yet there's the world that is out there saying, no, that's just hate speech. And you see how it works? And God calls us to be different. God calls us to be a witness, to proclaim his truth and his ideas, just like the nation of Israel. He told them, break down their Asherah poles. Now, Asherah, (coughs) an Asherah pole was a trunk that was set up. Sometimes it was carved. Sometimes it wasn't. But it goes all the way back to Babylon with Cineramis and Tammuz, the worship of the woman, the goddess. They kind of deified her, that type of thing. And when you see these, uh, these pictures, these icons where the Virgin Mary is bowing her head and she has this big halo over her head and she's holding the infant child and he has a halo over his head, that goes all the way back to Babylon. And the worship of the mother and the son. And then Jesus Christ came along and so they venerate Mary, you know, they do all that. Well, back in this time right here, she was transferred to the Asherah pole or Astarte, A-S-T-A-R-T-E, I think is how you spell it. Astarte is where we get the word Easter. And so this worship of false goddesses, Diana of the Ephesians, it's all the same thing. And it has to do with fertility. Remember Easter? What is Easter? It's Easter bunnies. Why did they pick the bunny? They have lots of bunnies, right? <laughs> Why did they pick the egg? Because the egg is a sign of fertility. That's, it, that's a, it's a pagan holiday, right? <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean you can't go get one of those peeps and eggs and things like that. If you want to do that, go ahead. Now, if you have an Asherah pole at home and you're going, we worship the goddess of sex, you know, okay. You you need to knock that stuff off. That's not what we do. We call it the resurrection day. We don't call it Easter, right? But this is what's going on. These people, they, they kind of put these two together, Baal and Ashtart or the Asherah poles, and they would have temple prostitutes, and God says, don't do it. Don't go to the temple prostitutes. <clears throat> take down their altars. Take down their buildings, their sacred stones. Don't get wrapped up in that. Now, what would be the altar for us today if we were going to be involved in idol worship facebook, <laughs> facebook. <laughs> well scripture again tells us what it is now idol worship idolatry there's a scripture for that what it has become for us even though we are not bowing down to the asherah poles and all of that colossians chapter 3 verse 5 and 6 says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And it lists them. 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. If we are going idolatrous as a nation, if we are going to sexualize everything, we are falling into idolatry. There's a perfect place for it. It's called marriage. But nobody wants to be married anymore. You know, the millennials, oh, let's, let's take a test run. You know, I want to test drive this car, make sure it's working okay. And God says, don't. But what if we're not compatible? Ah, that's a test for you, isn't it? You know, and that's what God wants for us. It's ironing, iron sharpening iron. That's what God does for us. And so these are the exhortations, and I'll have to finish this up next week, but these are the exhortations that God gave the nation of Israel. He said, don't do it. Be pure. Be ready to be obedient. Know that I am starting a covenant with you or fulfilling this covenant. And as we get to the end of this chapter, he says again, I'm making this covenant with you. God has made a covenant with us, and it's unconditional as far as he is concerned. But we want the covenantal life to be good. He says, just avoid these things. You know, if you tell your son, son, I don't want you speeding on the freeway. Do not take that Mustang up to 110 miles an hour when you're out on some back road. Just don't do it. I'm just telling you, don't do it. The parent needs to say, I'm not going to give you a Mustang. I'm going to give you a salvage car. And it's going to not get along so well. But this idea the child can say, no, I'm going to do this anyhow. And what happens to him? He gets a ticket, community service, paying the fine. And you can say, I told you, if you're going to do this, you're going to get in trouble. And so that's what God does. He guides us. He says, if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have to pay the price. My prayer for all of us is that we can say no to the idolatrous world that we can fall in line because of the goodness of God. We can say, God, I I really want to do this for you. I know that I fail, and I know that you forgive me. Just help me to act on the strength you have given me, right? Because God has already given us the strength. We have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. It's just we have to act on it. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us that we can act on those impulses that come from you, and we can crucify the ones that come from the world from the flesh and from Satan. You are so good to the nation of Israel and we know that you are so good to us, even more so, depositing within us your Holy Spirit. We give you so much thanks for your mercy and your grace and your kindness to us, the compassion that you bestow on all of us in this room. Help us to walk in the newness of life and be thankful for these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.